Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis. And Today, we are going to be talking about lumbar spine basics. But before we do that, I just want to thank everybody for listening. This has been great. Uh, Ortho Valpal has been growing significantly. Our viewership has been just uh, exponentially growing, and it's been wonderful. We've had some awesome comments uh, and, and great feedback from uh, a lot of our viewers, listeners, and even some requests for uh, different types of podcasts. So I really appreciate you. And, and thank you for those of you who have been going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. Things are looking great there and um, really heading in the right direction. So I'm just uh, glad to be able to continue to offer this type of uh, program. And uh, I've been thinking about this lately. You know, I've been doing this for almost a year now, trying to build this up and and working at this and wondering why I'm doing this. And um, really, it comes down to I've had 26 years of experience. I've seen thousands and thousands of patients. And I'd like to take this information, archive it, and and pass it on to folks so they can use it to help people. And um, I think through podcasting, it's a great way to do it. I'm also doing it through our YouTube videos. I just put up another 30 videos or so lately and I'm excited about uh, doing more of those. So the information is for you. I, I've got it out there. Um, I won't claim that I'm the expert uh, in, in everything orthopedic, but I certainly have a lot of experience and have seen a lot and um, tried a lot of different things when it comes to uh, treatment and evaluation. So again, I really appreciate you uh, sticking with me. I'd also like to uh, thank our sponsor, Easy Slant, uh, for supporting us and um, and for uh, for being there for us. And uh, again, thank you all for being there. So boy, oh boy, um, we're going to talk about the lumbar spine. And I know there's a lot of you out there who have been asking about it. And I, I'm sure that there are some of you who have been saying, I can't wait for him to, uh, can't wait for Paul to start talking about the lumbar spine. This is loaded. We have got a lot of information. I can't put this all into one podcast. We are going to be talking about uh, nerve root compression issues, mechanical low back pain, instability of the spine. We're going to talk about stenosis issues. Uh, I'm going to have some interviews with uh, experts in the field of the uh, lumbar spine, neurosurgeons and uh, folks of that sort. And so this is going to be exciting. I think uh, the next month or so is going to be loaded with lumbar spine information. And I hope to uh, get a bunch of feedback from you folks also. And requests, if you have a request in in, uh, regards to a particular topic, topic. And, and, and just because I'm talking about the lumbar spine for a series here doesn't mean that we can't throw something else in there because really I, I, I want to do it as we get it and uh, really enjoy it. So um, so where do we even start with this? You know, what, what, uh, what makes me somewhat of an expert in uh, treating the lumbar spine? Well, number one, I've been doing this for 26 years. I've treated thousands of people with lumbar spine issues, work comp injuries, non-work comp injuries, athletic injuries when it comes to the lumbar spine. Um, I have had a history of lumbar spine issues myself. Um, had an injury when I was in college where I was uh, playing a Roby, kind of like Frisbee uh, with somebody else. I was running to get it. I kind of stepped into a hole. It jarred my spine, um, gave me some discomfort for a very long time, um, worked on it, treated it, and and, uh, and, and had people look at it 
I still have occasional discomfort and I'm very, very physical. I own a tree farm. I use a chainsaw. I use an ax. Uh, I do a lot of shoveling, pushing, pulling. I mow a lot of lawn. I, I do a lot of physical labor when I'm not a physical, you know, when I'm not in the clinic doing physical therapy. So I have a lot of experience when it comes to body mechanics, training, ergonomics, um, and I've seen just about everything out there. So that that gives me a little, you know, uh, something to go by when uh, when you're wondering, you know, what my experience is. Um, you know, eight out of 10 people will develop low back pain in the course of their lives. That's quite a bit. And, and, you know, 90% of these people who develop low back pain will get better spontaneously in the course of, you know, uh, two to three weeks, typically. And so that just tells you how many people out there have low back pain because I see a majority of my caseload is is low back pain and, and shoulder injuries. Uh, but low back, I see tons and tons and tons of low back pain patients who don't get better in that two to three week period. So, you know, th- there's a huge number of people with it out there and many, many ways to treat this. So, um, you know, billions of dollars are spent on, on lumbar spine evaluation and treatment. And what I'm going to try to do with you over the next uh, several episodes is talk about how we can simplify the evaluation, how we can appropriately utilize diagnostic testing and um, move patients in the right direction for the right problem. And what you're going to f- end up finding out is that lumbar spine pain is can be very, very complicated if you make it complicated, but we're going to try to take that um, that complicated piece out of it. We're going to give you some some key pointers that is going to help you to try to put uh, the patient into a certain category in how to manage it. We're going to talk about algorithms of how to manage these patients. So, you know, starting from a conservative uh, course of treatment all the way up to having uh, surgery to the lumbar spine. And um, so we'll talk about all of that stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's very important that you understand the anatomy of the lumbar spine, okay? And there, and this has been well diagnosed, well proven that most people will misdiagnose lumbar spine issues. So it takes a lot of practice. You need to be mentored. You need to spend time with people who see a lot of lumbar spine issues and, and take them through programs in order to get good at treating them. Um, so... What I want to do today is just kind of go through some of the basics of the lumbar spine, and we'll get more technical when it comes to um, getting into specific diagnoses when we start treating them. So let's just start with you know the vertebral anatomy. And obviously, I'm not here showing this to you because we're on a podcast. So I need you to envision this. We all know this. We all know that the lumbar vertebrae are larger than the cervical and thoracic lum- vertebrae. They're naturally larger. They have to bear more weight. Okay. So the anterior aspect of the, the vertebrae has the vertebral body, and, and between the vertebral bodies sits the disc, okay? That disc is filled with, you know, a polysaccharide matrix. It's a, it's a jelly substance. It's a, it's a kind of a thick jelly, and then it's surrounded by nice solid rings that help to hold everything in place, uh, and when we're 18 years old, these things look great. There's nice height to the disc, uh, and that helps to suspend the uh, front part of the uh, vertebral body. Now, if we go to the posterior side, we look at the facets. The facets are oriented a little bit differently. They're they're oriented in a more vertical pattern, not so horizontal like in the cervical spine. So um, people with um, 
with lumbar spine facet issues will have difficulty, you know, extending. Uh, and typically the facet will allow flexion and extension, but not great lateral flexion or rotation like the cervical spine does. So remember that the facets help to support the posterior aspect of the spine. All right. Now, if you look at the, uh, the, the, shape of the lumbar spine, if you look at it from top to bottom, it has a lordosis, so basically um, an inward curve, so the belly sticks out a little bit more, and if you look at the low back, there's this inward curve, it's kind of naturally made that way. Some people have a larger accentuated lumbar lordosis, which causes problems, and other people have a loss of that lordosis, which can cause a different series of problems, so we'll be talking about that in in future episodes. Um, So, this disc that that helps to support the anterior aspect of the spine, remember this, um, it has these rings. These rings are uh, vascularized and there are nerve endings there. They can cause a lot of discomfort. If the rings tear, uh, they can cause a lot of localized spasm, but not always a lot of ridiculous symptoms. And um, one thing you need to realize is that, and you'll see this, remember this, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about nerve root compression problems, but remember this. Patients will often come in and say, you know what, I hurt my back and it it was very significant. It it hurt so bad. I had so much spasm in my low back. And that kind of went away after about a week. And then I started to develop pain down my leg. Well, typically what happens is the disc, the rings of the disc tear, cause the localized spasm. And then once they have completely torn, um, there's no more tension there. So it doesn't cause as much discomfort locally. And then the disc material, the, uh, the, uh, Nucleus pulposus will come out, put some compression onto the nerve, and then will cause some pain down the leg. So that's a very common presentation where they'll start with low back pain and then not have any back pain later and just ridiculous symptoms. So remember that. The other thing you need to know about the disc is that um, there are different activities that you do that increase discal pressure. Okay. And way, way back, they did this study where they took a gauge, a needle, stuck it into the human disc, and it was attached to a pressure gauge. And they had people standing. That was considered kind of neutral pressure of the spine. Then they had people sit. And there was a fairly significant increase in pressure in the disc when they were sitting. What increased the pressure in the disc even more is when you were sitting and bending forward. So it's interesting that people who have disc issues um, think that they should sit in a chair, bend over to put their shoes on and tie their shoes, and that would be better for them when actually it's worse for them. Um, And we'll talk about different things that you can do uh, ergonomically and biomechanically that can help take pressure off your back uh, in a future episode. So standing is your neutral position. What they also did is they had somebody take a um, a 10-pound weight, hold it up against their belly, and that increased the pressure in the disc by, you know, about 10 pounds. And then they had the patient bring the arm straight out in front of them with that 10 pound weight. So the arm was extended. The arms were extended way out in front of them. And that increased the pressure in the disc tenfold. Okay. Up to a hundred pounds of pressure just while holding a 10 pound weight. So think about people who lift a considerable amount of weight away from their bodies, puts a significant amount of pressure on the uh, disc. Most discs will herniate or bulge posteriorly. Rarely, rarely, rarely do they ever, um, uh, bulge, herniate, or protrude anteriorly. You don't see that. You know why? Because we have this huge anterior longitudinal ligament that goes all the way down the anterior aspect of the spine, and it's extremely, extremely supportive. So when you look at the spine, you'll find that the posterior longitudinal ligament is very, very small and not really there to hold the disc into place posteriorly. 
So what happens is that disc material will come out on either side and, and it is much more susceptible posteriorly. Why is it smaller posteriorly than it was anteriorly? I have my own theory about it, um, but uh, really, if you look at how the spine moves, the posterior aspect of the spine has to move a little bit more when you rotate and bend forward and, and flex extend and, and do all those types of activities. So it does need to be a little bit smaller to allow a little bit better mobility. So remember that also, okay? Um, if if you go way back posterior on the spine, you're going to have your spinous processes, okay? When you extend, these come together. When you forward flex, they separate, okay? Your facets separate when you forward flex, and they approximate when you extend, all right? So, now I'd like to talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the, the nervous system here. Okay. So the, the spinal canal and the spinal cord. So the spinal cord, um, goes through the canal and it's important that we understand at some point, um, when somebody has stenosis of the, um, spine, especially of the lumbar spine. And if there is too much closure around the central uh, cord, um, that can cause some problems like myelopathy. And, and other issues. So um, we're going to be talking about that uh, in future episodes. And then you have the foramen where the nerve roots come off the spinal cord and then go down the legs. Uh, and so these foramen also get closed up when you extend the lumbar spine and open up when you flex. So an important thing to remember here because some people get so caught up on certain types of exercise programs to treat herniated discs or lumbar spine problems like McKenzie extension exercises or Williams flexion exercises. And you need to know what the diagnosis is and what the problem is before you start treating them with these certain pro with these certain uh, programs. So very important that you understand what gets compressed and what gets opened up when the spine flexes, extends, laterally flexes, um, or rotates, okay? So with that in mind, um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break and uh, get a word from our sponsor, and uh, we'll be back in just a little bit, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the muscular structure of the lumbar spine, mechanical versus chemical irritation, and um, several other things. So um, please hold on for just a little bit, and uh, here's a word from our sponsor. Did you know that over 90% of foot and ankle problems are caused by a tight calf muscle? Introducing the Easy Slant, a durable, adjustable, and portable calf stretching device. The Easy Slant was designed to increase stretching compliance and get you back on your feet and feeling better faster. So if you work with patients seeking to ease or avoid foot pain or clients who want to improve their athletic performance, look no further. Visit easyslant.com to learn more or order yours today. Enter coupon code OEP for a 10% discount on your first Easy Slant. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ortho Valpal podcast. And um, now we are going to be talking a little bit about dynamic stability of the lumbar spine. And we can spend, I went to a course and spent two complete days just studying dynamic stability of the lumbar spine. Now, I think there are some key components you need to know. Number one, whenever somebody has back pain, you are going to 
automatically have what we call reflex inhibition of some of the lumbar stabilizing muscles, okay? And we've talked about reflex inhibition in the quadricep muscle. It happens whenever you have pain or swelling or instability in the knee. Your brain says, hey, there's something wrong in the knee. Shut down that quad muscle, okay? Same thing happens in the shoulder. You have impingement. The rotator cuff shuts down. Well, the same thing happens in the lumbar spine. So our biggest stabilizing muscles of the lumbar spine are the transverse abdominus muscle, which is uh, a deep muscle that helps to corset the anterior aspect of the um, spine. And then you have the multifidus muscles, which help to give us uh, some dynamic stability and some rotatory stability of the spine on the posterior side. These two muscle groups work in synchrony, okay, just like the biceps and triceps do to cause a co-contraction at the elbow. Um, we the, the transverse abdominus and the multifidus do the same thing. What we do know is that the transverse abdominis and multifidus muscles, they shut down and they start to atrophy pretty quickly when there's nerve root compression problems or lumbar spine pain. So something that is very important to remember, and this is going to happen if somebody has surgery, they're going to have shutdown of those muscles. So we need to get those muscles turned on, okay, and we need to get them working. The other thing that we... Um, that we know is that through uh, very good studies that some of the Australians have done in regards to transverse abdominus contraction and activation of the muscles is that um, they don't turn on at the right time. So they're able to turn on, but they're just not turning on at the appropriate time. Okay. So what has to happen is uh, let's say that uh, somebody throws an egg at you. I don't know. And, and the first thing you're going to do is react by lifting your arm up. So it doesn't hit you in the face and, Essentially, what should happen is that you should have some feed forward mechanism here where your transverse abdominus and multifidus muscles contract to stabilize you, and then you move your arm. Well, it's been well researched that if you've had a history of back pain, your arm muscles will move first, and then your transverse muscles will contract later, which means that your spine will go through a short episode of instability. And what we know with instability of the spine is it causes early degenerative changes and less activation of those muscles that, that stabilize and can cause some problems down the road. Okay, so transverse and multifidus activation is going to be super huge. We'll uh, do an episode just on that. We'll talk to you about the research behind that also. And I think you'll find that to be pretty cool. Um, another thing we need to think about is mechanical versus chemical irritation. All right. So um, what is mechanical irritation? Let's talk about uh, maybe some nerve root compression, for example. Okay. So a, um, a disc uh, starts to tear let's say at the uh, L4, L5 level, and it starts to tear and it causes a lot of inflammation. It causes a lot of swelling and that swelling presses up against the nerve root and gives you some L5 nerve root irritation, okay? That is an example of chemical irritation, which can be managed with medication, injections, um, and, and, and you can respond really well to things like that, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or even a, a steroid medrol dose pack, steroid taper, um, and interventional um, injections can be helpful for people in those situations. But let's say that that disc, that, that disc uh, the, the rings have opened up, the disc material has come out, and that nucleus pulposus is now pressing up against the nerve. Well, that is mechanical irritation, okay? So you may have some success using some anti-inflammatories with patients in this situation, but if you're getting a true frank compression on a nerve root or, or, or a facet that is degenerated and it's all broken down and you have no more hyaline cartilage in there and you're getting a bone-on-bone -bone situation, that is a mechanical problem. 
those are not going to respond so well to chemical treatments. Okay, so we need to try to take pressure off of those areas. Now you can do it through conservative management, um, positional things in therapy, being strong in the right areas and be flexible in other areas. Um, but sometimes it's inevitable and you need to have surgery to take these mechanical compression problems off so that we can start to activate our abdominals and our, and our transverse and multifidus muscles better and we can get back to normal movement. One thing I've learned over 26 years is that all of my back pain patients are going to be on a cardiovascular program. Those that are more cardiovascularly fit do better. We know that the lumbar discs um, start to lose capillary um, you know, size and you get less blood flow to the discs as you get older. And this starts to happen after 25 and 30 years old. So the disc starts to become smaller. It becomes drier. You start to develop some compression there. So movement, movement, movement is super important. And, and being cardiovascularly fit and bringing blood flow to the area through movement is important. Okay. When I first started at 25, 26 years ago, somebody had back pain. The requested treatment and recommended treatment was six weeks of bed rest completely flat on your back in bed. Um, and then they started to learn and study that, hey, you know what? That's a little too much time. People are getting weak. They're becoming deconditioned. They're developing pneumonia and all kinds of other deconditioning problems. That's making them worse. So let's not rest them so much. So then it went to four weeks, three weeks, two weeks. And now really the literature shows that, you know, one day of bed rest is pretty much as much as a person needs when they've injured their back. And that movement is actually more important. It helps to bring blood flow to the area. And normalizing function is more important to that lumbar spine than total immobilization. So movement is important, but it has to be done in the right way to not aggravate or make the person's situation worse. All right. So these are some things that I want you to think about. I mean, we could go all day long about just the simple basics of the lumbar spine, but I'm going to come across here with some some huge uh, podcasts about spinal stenosis, nerve root compression, when is surgery indicated, we're going to interview a neurosurgeon, and we're going to talk to interventional pain docs. And uh, we're going to uh, really give you a ton of information here so that we can help you sort out your lumbar spine situations with your patients so that you feel more comfortable evaluating them, and even more comfortable making the decision on what to do with them and how to manage them once you come up with that diagnosis. So again, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Please make sure that you go to orthoevalpal.com. And um, if you want our weekly newsletter, just go ahead and sign up on the Get in Touch page. And uh, I'll make sure that we send the podcast out to you and any other uh, relevant information because we've got some new content coming up. And uh, you'll, you'll be the first to get that. And uh, we're going to continue to post these on Tuesdays. And the other thing you should do is go to the website, check out a new program we've got going. Uh, I am going to start doing some coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching. This is going to be made for the PA, FNP, the physical therapist who is kind of maybe wanting to get back into orthopedics or maybe a young therapist who just doesn't have a lot of experience and, uh, and, and where mentoring can really help to slingshot you ahead and learn all the things that I learned in 26 years uh, in, a, in a relatively early time in your life so you're not wasting so much time doing trial and error type activities, um, trying to get your patients better. So I'm going to be doing some coaching and we're also going to be um, starting very soon here, a membership page, which is going to be loaded with information. And this is going to be for those of you who are really serious about getting better with your ortho eval uh, skills 
and um, and want some great information uh, from me and want to have access to me. So make sure you check it out on our uh, on our website, orthoevalpal.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, have a great day. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.